Hey, it's um, Brian here. A listener note, this episode contains descriptions of suicide that some people may find unsettling. If you want to avoid this, at the 26-minute mark, go ahead and skip ahead to 29 minutes. And if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, you can find resources in the episode description. In 1935, Franklin D. Roosevelt put his signature on the Social Security Social Security Social Security Act. Hi, this is Eric Sikhan. This is one of the craziest people who pulled off the biggest scam in the history of the Social Security Administration. If he couldn't help me, nobody could. I guess he perfected a way to screw the government more efficiently than everybody else did. Everybody who came to see him got their benefits and they got them quickly. I thought he was helping me, but at that time he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> everybody knew Eric Kahn was Mr. Social Security. From Fun Meter, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We are the executive producers and directors of the new four-part documentary series on Apple TV Plus called The Big Con. And just a little reminder, all four episodes are available to binge right now. And this is The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV Plus, a companion piece to the documentary series of the same name. This is episode four. Once more with conviction. I'm originally from a very small town. It's not even a town in eastern Kentucky. It's more of a point on a map. You have to drive 20 minutes to find your first stoplight. That's Donnie Kidd. When he was growing up, nobody had even heard of Eric C. Khan yet. There were no canary yellow billboards with oversized mannequins along the highway. Just unobstructed views for miles. You go from the flatland of central Kentucky, the bluegrass, the tobacco fields, then you start seeing the mountains in front of you. And I'm not talking really tall, smoky, mountain-sized mountains. I'm talking the foothills of the Appalachians. Beautiful, green, lush, just the most vibrant colors you could ever imagine. Picture all that greenery as sort of gift wrapping on top of Kentucky's most precious cargo, coal. There were miles of coal mines underground, and that's how it had been since the 1800s, when energy companies from the north moved in and strong-armed the landowners. Basically stole all the mineral rights from the people. They let the occupants of the property stay there, but they owned all the coal underneath. And when these companies were to decide, hey, I want to come down and start mining that coal, originally there was nothing the property owners could do. So the coal companies wound up with a lot of power and a lot of influence. Donnie's like a lot of people in the area. He comes from a long line of coal miners. My dad was a coal miner. His dad was a coal miner. All of my uncles were coal miners. And even my mother sold electrical cable to the coal mining industry. The people in Eastern Kentucky, you will never find a more hardworking group of people in your life. And back in the 70s, when Donnie was growing up, there was a lot of work to come by. The price of coal skyrocketed, and there were more mines than ever. Coal miners made a comfortable living. Suburbia had come to the mountains, and then some. It made the people living in poverty, and there were still a lot of them, look even poorer next to the wealth that moved in. 
Well, for a while at least. There were more millionaires per capita in Pike County, Kentucky than anywhere else in the country. Now think about that for a second. Because of the coal boom in the 1970s, in little old rural, mountainous, eastern Kentucky, there were more millionaires per capita than anywhere else in the United States. And then unfortunately the coal boom busted and the coal industry started to go. Those millionaires who feasted on the spoils of Appalachia packed up and took all the coal mine jobs with them. That meant there were a lot of hard workers left behind, many who sacrificed their bodies to keep the lights on for the rest of the country. And that created an opportunity for some new money makers in the area, attorneys. These people, they knew that, hey, I can't get any jobs. All I've ever done in my whole life is work in the coal mines, and now I'm injured and there's nothing else to do. And their only alternative was to apply for either workers' compensation or social security disability benefits. Donnie and Eric Kahn actually went to the same high school, but that's not how he knew about Eric. Turns out in the 90s, Donnie was a disability attorney too. Donnie remembers Eric Kahn's clients actually coming to see him because Eric wasn't getting the job done. But then Donnie moved away to work for the FBI. When he came back a few years later, Eric Kahn was now Mr. Social Security. You could not listen to two songs without hearing three Eric Kahn commercials on the radio. He would have these small blimps with his advertising on it that would be floating around in the local high school basketball games. And I'm like, damn, what's this world coming to? He was a showman, the P.T. Barnum of the law profession. It took a few years for Donnie to find out just what kind of circus Eric Kahn was running. By 2013, Donnie was now the supervisor of the FBI's Lexington field office. One October morning, he was flipping through the local newspaper and landed on an article about the Senate hearing that Khan was the center of just a day earlier. And now? Well, now it all made sense to Donnie. I remember leaning back in my chair going, well, I'll be damned. We need to do something about this. Donnie picked up the phone and called the federal prosecutor's office in eastern Kentucky, asking if they were going to take the case because he was ready to help. But they told him they recused themselves from taking the case initially, citing a conflict of interest. So Donnie tried the SSA's office of the inspector general. As it happened, Donnie worked with the investigator from Huntington in the past. So I called him up and offered our help. And he said, well, I appreciate that. We've had this case going for a little while. And actually the Senate hearings, pretty much all the evidence that was heard there was evidence that we'd already came up with. And we've got a pretty good case. Thank you very much. Okay. The OAG had been struggling for two years to get the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of West Virginia to prosecute. But they thought getting all the evidence from the Senate investigation would help. That put Donnie at ease for a bit at least. But the OIG might have spoken too soon. Prosecutors still said the evidence was too circumstantial and they wanted to see more. So the OIG investigators came up with a clever idea. They found all of these mysterious cash deposits in Judge Doherty's bank records. If they got the IRS involved and could prove that Doherty wasn't claiming the cash on his taxes, they might be able to charge him and get him to flip on Khan. No dice, though. Prosecutors wouldn't go that route. Next, 
an investigator went directly to Judge Doherty's house. He invited us to sit down. And we, we just sat and talked, nothing about this case, but just life in general. And that's Tim Morton, a special agent for the Office of the Inspector General, or OIG. You know, I'd been doing this pretty long time, kind of get a sense of, you know, reading people, and I just felt like that, give me an hour with him, he may talk to me about all this. So I went back and, and I told the, the Southern District of West Virginia about how, how the meeting went, and I said, look, I think he might be truthful with me. I, I really believe that I can do some good there. And that's when I was told that even if I got him to confess, it would not be enough evidence for this case. What? You know, like I said, every step we took, it seemed like you'd get knocked back a couple steps, no matter what it was. We reached out to the Southern District of West Virginia, who didn't respond to our request for comment. The investigators were frustrated, and they were running out of time. By 2014, the case had been open for three years. They were barreling towards the statute of limitations. In April that year, they went back to the prosecutors and asked them to decline the case so they could go take it somewhere else. Just think about this. OIG investigators had the largest fraud scheme in the history of the SSA on their hands. And neither jurisdiction where the crimes took place would prosecute Eric Kahn. A lot of folks whispered about exactly why that was. Let's hear it from the doc series. The politics behind the scene on this stink to high heaven. The theory is Eric had spread so much dirty money all over the place that if he went to prison and he sang like a canary, he can indict half of Appalachia. So to most people, it seems like everybody got away with it. Judge Doherty is allowed to retire at the ripe old age of 75 with all his benefits. Judge Andrus is temporarily demoted in some way and then later retires. Eric Hahn keeps doing what he's doing. More than a year had passed since the Senate hearing, and Senator Tom Colburn, who called the Senate investigation, was getting impatient. Colburn focused his career on calling out what he considered wasteful federal spending. He had long been skeptical of scammers in the Social Security program. And since the Senate hearing, he made clear his concerns extended beyond Eric Kahn. Go read the statute. If there's any job in the economy you can perform, you are not eligible for disability. That's pretty clear. So where do all those disabled people come from? If all these people are disabled that apply, I want them all to get it. And then we need to figure out how we're going to fund it. But my investigation tells me, and my common sense tells me, that we've got a system that's being gained pretty big right now. As far as he was concerned, a lot of people were taking advantage of the system, thanks to both poor oversight and applicants. Even as Colburn was battling cancer and set to retire in early 2015, one of the last things he did as senator was propose a bill to reform SSI benefits and tighten restrictions on who had access to the fund. He gave an impassioned speech on the Senate floor, castigating the Department of Justice for dragging their feet on prosecuting Khan. Here's tape from the documentary series of that final speech. At this point, the United States attorneys in West Virginia and Kentucky have both recused themselves and declined to prosecute Mr. Khan. 
Now, I wonder what he has over them. I wonder what, what it is when you have a, a closed case, prosecutorial case that you have to do no work on, and the U.S. attorneys will not prosecute a thief of the highest order. Months passed and still no movement. Back in Kentucky, Donnie Kidd hadn't forgotten about the case. In fact, he was eager for something to be done. I was basically at my wit's end. And talk about a coincidence, I was writing a memo to my boss at the time saying, hey, here's what's going on. Nobody wants to prosecute it. You know, I'm like, boss, we got to do something. There's no way we can let this go. And, and you won't believe this. As I'm typing this memo to my boss asking for help, Dustin Davis just, you know, by the grace of God, calls me. And Dustin is a prosecutor from the main Department of Justice in their fraud division saying, hey, heard you're interested in this case. I'm interested in it too. Let's put something together and, and see what we can do. Donnie didn't know it, but Trey Alford, who we meet in the documentary series, had been prosecuting social security fraud cases and had been working with the Office of Inspector General to get this case prosecuted. Trey actually had flown to Washington, D.C. with OIG agents to present this case to Dustin Davis. And it paid off. You have to realize, this is a big deal. Maine Justice doesn't just step in and take cases. A week later, at a secret location, Donnie met with his dream team of other investigators. We had a room full of FBI agents, IRS agents, Social Security OIG agents, and federally deputized state police officers. And I remember looking around the room going, all right, this is what we're talking about. Something's going to be done now. The team came up with a plan. With the help of the FBI, the DOJ and the OIG investigators would go back to Eastern Kentucky and interview as many past and current con employees as possible. Now, I know some of these employees may have been interviewed before when the um, Office of Inspector General investigators were doing their case initially, but sometimes there's a little difference when the person knocking on your door has a badge that says FBI as opposed to when it says another agency. So the agents get to Appalachia and start knocking on doors, conducting interviews. They spoke with nearly 40 people that day. Two agents wound up at the home of someone who gave them information that had so far escaped everyone else. This former employee of Eric Khan said, long before the Wall Street Journal article came out, Eric asked her to join him for a boat ride with Judge Doherty. Now, if you haven't seen the doc series, you're missing out. What happened on that boat is absolutely ridiculous. But right now, all you need to know is this employee saw Eric Kahn with a pouch of money. After the boat ride, the three of them go to a Mexican restaurant for lunch. Judge Doherty is pounding margaritas. And Eric's employee is like, doesn't he have to go back to the office? Eric says to her, hey, go get a Pepsi, will ya? And when she returns, the money pouch is gone. She didn't see exactly what happened. But a few years later, after the Wall Street Journal article came out, Eric says, they can't prove I paid Judge Doherty. The only one who can prove I paid Judge Doherty is you. And he points directly at her. Finally, the answer to the mysterious cash deposits in Judge Doherty's bank records. But the real people who would pay were about to find out just what they owed. 
Okay, I own that big welding shop right there in the intersection at Dean. That's Jeffrey Bentley. We didn't speak to him for the documentary series, but there were so many people affected by Eric Kahn that we kept finding more and more people with compelling stories. For years, Jeffrey was the go-to guy for welding work when anyone in the coal mines needed something. All the strip mines, I did all of the strip jobs, like coal trucks, uh, dozers, rock truck beds, in motor buckets, uh, roller chassis. Oh, those guys, it really hurt them when I couldn't work no more. Because <laughs> they, they counted on me to keep their equipment going, you know? Jeffrey had been working since he was 13 years old. Over the years, the welding business had worn on his neck. He'd done what he could do to keep going even had a few plates and screws inserted to keep his neck stable. Most of the time, he just worked through the pain. So you would stand there in the sun all day long with a sledgehammer driving wedges. And it's not very easy. It's really hard work. One day at work, Jeffrey was using a sledgehammer and a slate bar to pry open some equipment he was fixing when an accident happened. Well, the bar slipped. And when the bar slipped, I felt my neck. And I knew right then that something was wrong. I got real dizzy and lightheaded. And I went home that night, and when I got in the shower to take a shower, I had to lean against the wall. I could not even, I couldn't even balance myself. So I knew I'd really hurt something. The next day, Jeffrey went back to work, but something just wasn't right. He tried to work through the pain like he had done in the past, but this time, it wasn't going away. I couldn't even put my welding hood. I, I, you know, you got to flip your neck to, to turn your welding hood down. I, I could not even do that. My, my doctor even told me, they said, you're done. I never ask anybody for anything in my life. I, my dad raised me to work. I don't know what this give me free deal stuff is. I, I done everything I could do to try to work, and I just couldn't do it. When Jeffrey quit, he didn't know how he'd make a living. That's when he heard Eric Kahn might be able to get him disability benefits. I always worked all my life. I never, I never thought about anything. But yeah, a friend of mine told me about him. And then that's when I went and started signing up, you know. I only see the guy one time for maybe five minutes. Jeffrey went to see Eric in 2005, before Eric had begun promising he could win claimants' benefits in half the time. His case took significantly longer. Five years later, Jeffrey finally got approved for his benefits. It was better than nothing, but it was nowhere near what he made at work. You know, I was used to making two or three grand every week or two, and it go down to 1100 a month. I mean, <laughs> can't, even, can't even live on that. I mean, my whole life changed. When I was really young, back in the day, I raced dirt track cars. Well, I had to sell everything I had. I couldn't even do that anymore. And that was one of my favorite things of life, you know what I mean? And now that's all, that was all took. I lost everything I had, everything. I lost my welding business, I lost my home, I lost everything. After Jeffrey got his benefits in 2010, he scraped by for a few years. And that time, Khan came under fire. But Jeffrey had no idea until May 2015, when he got a letter in the mail from the Social Security Administration. Effective immediately, he would lose all his monthly benefits because of the investigation. And he thought, 
how could this possibly be the case? I told my wife, I said, what am I going to do? I can't pay my bills. I can't work. Nobody will give me a job. What, what are you going to do? Where's your life go? Jeffrey was just one of 900 Eric Kahn clients who lost their benefits that day. Let's hear from some of the clients from the doc series. I believe totally and firmly that I would have got my benefits with whatever lawyer I had. At that time, I thought he was helping me, but at that time, he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. You struggle every day around here, and to lose that little bit of benefits, you know, that's everything. It's not easy when everybody thinks that you are a liar and a cheat. I have actually had to scoot down the hallway, but I was trying to work. I hadn't heard anything about anything going on with Eric Kahn. I just, I didn't know what to do. I think I cried for three days. Immediately tried contacting uh, Mr. Kahn's office and no, was no answer. I mean, you worry about how you gonna feed your kid. It's bad. You can't blame these people for trusting Eric C. Kahn. I mean, why would you want to wait the normal amount of time when essentially Eric C. Kahn was selling the equivalent of a fast pass to Disney World? Jeffrey tried to keep finding work, but he was in worse shape than when he started applying for benefits. He couldn't pass a physical for any of the jobs he was applying for. But I had lung cancer, lung took out. When I would go for interviews and when they would send me, you know, to, to the doctor, that's why they'd turn me down. Well, we can't, we can't hire you. You got, you got disc in your neck, it's bulging, you, your, your spinal cord hole there is about to shut off. Uh, you got a place on your lung. And see, I had no insurance. I had no insurance. It wasn't like I could run to the doctor and say, you need to fix me. You know, they couldn't do that anyway. Jeffrey only had 10 days to submit the medical records to have his benefits reinstated. But he thought, the SSA already has my records. So he called the office up. And they said, we will not accept any of your medical records that you filed disability on. I said, well, why not? She said, because of this. The problem was, SSA had no way of knowing if Khan's clients were actually disabled. Investigators had found that medical records Khan had submitted with those claims were falsified templates. Some of those claimants' records were identical to each other. Khan had put his clients' medical records on a shelf and never submitted them. So Jeffrey started calling every doctor he had seen before he went to Khan. It seemed like an impossible task. But, you know, my case has been 15 years. I, I don't even remember who some of the doctors was. I even called to London, MRI, and they said, well, that place has been shut down for years. I said, well, what about my records? Well, we only keep them seven years. They're gone. I said, what am I supposed to do? Your Social Security's a hound of me. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Jeffrey called back the Social Security office. He told them that none of the medical records that he had before he saw Khan existed anymore. And I said, well, they're gone. I can't find. Well, that's your problem. Now, that was exactly what the lady in Social Security office told me. That's your problem. You get them. Jeffrey was incredulous. His injury forced him to give up everything. And only after waiting five years to receive any help, the money he got from disability, that his tax dollars paid into, no less, were barely enough to sustain him. 
Now he had to prove to the SSA that he wasn't freeloading for monthly benefits because of their mistake? This was literally adding insult to injury. No, I'm not gonna turn down $45 an hour to get 1100 a month. You'd take, it'd take somebody not too smart to do that. I was upset with both, Eric Kahn and the Social Security outfit. If they was stuff going on, they dropped the ball. They dropped the ball. Why was they not on this instead of waiting 15 years later? That's wrong. That's wrong. They should not even be allowed to even bring something up 15 years later. Jeffrey didn't know what was left to do. When you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, am I going to have money to even buy food next month? That is a feeling that you, it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend, you know, when you happen to sit there and wonder what's going to happen. And that was when I turned around and come to Ned's office. I said, I got to do something. They're going to, they're going to push me off the boat. There was one person from day one saying it was a predictable event, and that was Ned Pillersdorf. That is, in fact, Ned Pillersdorf. He likes to refer to himself in the third person from time to time. Ned's practice wasn't disability benefits. He was a criminal defense lawyer. His job was to get white-collar criminals out of jail. After Khan's clients were left high and dry, someone had to step in. Ned just didn't think it was going to be him. But the locals thought otherwise. I remember being at Hardy's where I get my uh, sausage and egg breakfast. I still do it. And I remember there was no line in the drive-through, and I remember the lady saying very matter-of-factly, I didn't even know this lady, she said, said, Ned, my boss says that if you don't fix this Ericon thing, we're all gonna lose our job. She said, you'll notice there's nobody online here. After those letters went out, everybody's cutting back. And that's when it hit me, this is real. He took on the enormous task of trying to right the wrong that the Social Security Administration did to all of Khan's clients. And it didn't take him long to realize how high the stakes were. As if losing their benefits wasn't stressful enough, the SSA sent out another round of letters to claimants. If they couldn't prove their case, they would need to pay the benefits back that they had already received. That's when the unthinkable happened. We're about to hear an excerpt from the doc series, but please be warned, this next part is very unsettling. I got a phone call from a prominent Kentucky psychiatrist and another psychologist, and they taught me something I didn't know. They said that people will kill themselves who've had a sudden economic downturn if they think there's no hope and they've been abandoned. And sure enough, 10 days later, the suicide started. Leroy Burchett, my client, somebody I knew, he immediately stopped taking his antidepressants for economic reasons. Leroy shot himself in front of his family and died. And then, with all this tumultuousness going on, the fear and panic, we had just learned there was another suicide. She was actually headed to my office, and she pulled off on the side of the road uh, near the Martin-Floyd County line and put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. These people didn't have to lose their benefits. They used the draconian death penalty, I'd refer to it for these people. The clients didn't know that he was taking their medical records and basically putting them in a box and putting them on a shelf and substituting with false medical reports. Khan's clients 
couldn't have known about the inner workings of his operation because they barely knew Eric. And here are some more voices from our series. I've never met Eric Kahn. I never even saw the guy. Saw him one time passing through the lobby. No, I never got to meet Eric. I did not know Eric Kahn. I did not know he was a fraud, and to this day I don't. I don't know him. It is fair to say there's probably not a family in Pike, Floyd, not in Letcher County, in Mingo, West Virginia, who doesn't know somebody or somebody directly connected to this. I don't know how many times I've gotten a, an email, a Facebook message, a text message. I'm thinking about killing myself, Ned. It's another Christmas. I can't buy presents. You know, I never wanted to be a suicide hotline, but I've turned into a suicide hotline, and none of this needed to happen. Ned couldn't get all of Khan's clients their benefits back on his own. He needed help, and a lot of it. So he asked a friend. John Rosenberg, who's been probably one of the most valuable players in organizing legal help for these people, He's a legendary former civil rights lawyer and head of the legal aid office. John Rosenberg is also a Holocaust survivor and the founder of the Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, known as Apple Red, in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. He devoted his entire career to fighting for people like Eric's clients. And then we had a bar meeting to try to decide how, what could be done and uh, how to get representation for these folks because Eric had already gotten all the attorney fees, so it was clear that it would have to be pro bono if these folks went to a hearing. Ned and John needed an army of attorneys all willing to work for free. And that's a really tall order. We ended up recruiting over 140 of these people from around the country, I think 80-some in Kentucky. None of them have ever, that I know of, have complained that they didn't have a colorable case, that the client did not have some basis on which to claim their disability. Ned wondered endlessly why the SSA came down so hard on Khan's clients and when exactly the focus shifted to the claimants at all. I mean, we can't get over Senator Colburn saying these people all were involved in a scam. In Ned's opinion, Senator Tom Colburn, who called the Senate hearing, hadn't helped the situation. Even after Khan's clients lost their benefits, he was quoted in an interview saying, the claimants in this case were not innocent. They knew a scam was going on. Some of them may actually be disabled, but they got themselves a shyster of a lawyer. I think it is reprehensible what he said. What Senator Colburn did that was good. He, he, he exposed the corruption in the Social Security Administration with Judge Jordan and Khan. But then he took it one step further and in my opinion, helped trigger this humanitarian crisis. And we have been fighting that big lie every day. The Social Security Administration required every client to go through a redetermination hearing. When they started, attorneys were attending 20 to 30 hearings per week in Presenceburg, Kentucky. All of them were based on an OIG report that Ned and the attorneys had requested from the SSA but could never obtain. Every hearing starts out with, there's a secret finding of fraud that you can't challenge, former con client. Essentially, it's the same thing as if someone accused you of robbing a store and them saying they have evidence but refusing to show you. 
As a result, any evidence generated by any of the four doctors Khan utilizes is automatically inadmissible. And by the way, this hearing is only going to be concerned about whether or not you were disabled typically in 2007, 2008. And any evidence that you have that you developed cancer in 2009, became paralyzed in 2011, had a stroke in 2013, it's automatically admissible. Now let's start the hearing. In other words, clients better have their own medical records that prove they were disabled years ago when they originally applied if they wanted their benefits back. And instead, the Social Security Administration is devoting huge resources to going after the con clients for whether they were disabled 15 years ago. And my clients listen to this, and they're just in numb, in shock. They're losing their coverage because they got put through rigged, unfair hearings that were the, rigged, the rules were stacked against them. If Franklin Roosevelt knew what was going on, I think he'd be ashamed of the bureaucrats who hijacked the agency, the one agency designed to help the least among us, and now they have unmercifully harassed the least among us. Ned was furious, and the stress was mounting, so much so that his wife, Janet, was worried about him. At one point, she told me to go see a doctor, and my response was, I don't need to see a doctor. What am I gonna tell a doctor? I'm worried about the con clients, I'm mad at Eric Khan. I'm mad at the SSA. What's a doctor gonna do? It wasn't just Ned who was mad at Eric Kahn. Even after the Wall Street Journal article was published years later, people in the region had rallied around Khan, but now they turned against him. Eric was still running his law firm. He'd even rebranded himself. And why not? It's not like he lost his license to practice, but all that was about to change. Floyd County Social Security attorney Eric C. Kahn has been arrested and lodged in the Pike County Detention Center on a hold for the FBI. That's when I sent her a text message that just was a bunch of Fs. Fuckity fuck, 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 fuck. And that's just what it meant. It was the abbreviated version of that. Years of inaction, after years of nothing, after years of me thinking that Eric Kahn had won, Suddenly, there was this explosion of activity, and the whole world came crashing down on Eric. Eric Kahn might have thought he'd get away with everything, but he was wrong. As you just heard in the excerpt from the doc series, the authorities finally arrested him on April 4th, 2016. He was charged with conspiring with Judge Doherty and Dr. Bradley Atkins and an 18-count indictment in connection with the disability fraud scheme. After his arrest, Eric was taken to a Pike County jail, where it would be decided if he could get out on bond. And then, well, we'll just let him tell you about it via his manuscript. I was taken to the Pike County jail where I was kept overnight. I was put in a room by myself. Abby Lowell did not have the time to arrive before my bond hearing. The government wanted to deny me bond. It was not long into the hearing that it was obvious a full-blown hearing was needed just in the matter of my bond. A date was set, but in the meantime, I was to stay in jail. I was then placed into general population, and I entered a world I had never known. Several men were sleeping on the floor, and some were unfortunate enough to sleep beside the one toilet. 
A muscular young man looked at me very sternly and asked, what are you in here for? I replied, money. I heard someone yell out, I just saw that guy on TV. He's in here for a lot of money. His demeanor totally changed. He smiled and said, come on, let me help you find a place to sleep. He asked me if I wanted a grape soda, to which I said, yes. So Eric sat in jail, waiting for a detention hearing, which would decide whether or not he could get out of jail on bond until his trial. Two hours away, the FBI was also preparing their arguments for the hearing at the Lexington field office. Our agents were like, hey, everybody we've talked to, they know this guy's going to run. He's not going to spend any time in jail. He can't. He's too soft. They'll, they will eat him alive. The day of the hearing, everyone filed into a courtroom in Lexington, including attorneys from the Department of Justice and Abby Lowell, Eric's high-powered attorney from the Senate hearing. The DOJ got to present to the judge first and called on an FBI special agent to make their case. The points that she would have brought out would have included the fact that Khan had traveled extensively around the world. He and some of his friends had gone to the Philippines, they had gone to Central America, South America, Dominican Republic. I think they'd gone to Russia. The boy had a passport and he knew how to get around the world. Agents also interviewed former Khan employees who said Eric transferred money overseas on several occasions. And he had money stowed away in other people's accounts, including his mom's. Some of the employees even heard Khan say that he would flee if he ever got caught. Ecuador and Cuba were on his radar, so he could avoid extradition. The DOJ felt like they had a pretty strong case. But when it was Abby Lowell's turn, he had counters to all of it. The interviews from Khan's employees are hearsay. The transactions presented were three to four years old. The evidence was just too stale. And then he motioned to the audience, where six of Khan's current employees were sitting. They all came to court to tell you that he has made no statements in the last four years about his intention to do anything but fight. That's his mindset. Eric Khan came home after every trip. He came home after every trip in the midst of some of the hardest legal battles. And each and every occasion he has attended when asked. And he has never failed to make an appearance, and you know that's true, Your Honor. Becky Rose, who helped Abby prepare for the hearing, couldn't believe how intimidating and impressive he was. Abby Lowell was like the rain man of the courtroom, okay? Like, you didn't talk to Abby Lowell. You didn't bother Abby Lowell, and you didn't you know, um, you just did not cross any lines. But by golly, when he got in the courtroom, you thought you were watching primetime television. That man was amazing. Eric also sat in his seat, enthralled by Abby's performance. Here's Boyd with Eric's manuscript again. The moment the hearing began, I thought I was watching a lawyer movie. I never seen in any movie or real life a performance that came close to the performance that Abby gave that day. It was like watching Van Gogh paint or Mozart compose a symphony. It was a masterpiece that Matlock could never duplicate. 
The hearing concluded, but no one had any doubts that we had prevailed. Then the judge just decided for various reasons that Khan was not a flight risk under the condition that he be home detained with an ankle monitor. So Eric got placed on house arrest. And then he decided that instead of a trial, he would try to strike a deal. And he did. Eric pleaded guilty to one count of theft of government property and one count of paying illegal gratuities. But it doesn't stop there. Here's a clip from the doc series. Judge Daugherty then agreed to a plea deal himself at four years in prison. And Eric agreed to 12 years. It was a, a triple home run deal given what he was facing. Now we've got Big Fish 1 and Big Fish 2, but Brad Adkins, he chose to go to trial. If I had been guilty of what they said I'd done, I would have taken a plea deal. I had consulted God, and I didn't feel like he wanted me to plead. I would have had to have lied to have taken the plea. So now Eric was looking at 12 years, but according to another one of his attorneys, Scott White, they were hoping to whittle down Eric's sentence a little. When I plead guilty and I begin cooperating, meaning I'm giving you information on other defendants and I'm even willing to go testify against other defendants, then that 12 years, I get credit. They will take more time off the 12, and that's called a 5K process. So all Eric had to do was go in and testify for the United States against Dr. Atkins. And he would have remained probably still out on pretrial detention, home incarceration. Kind of a cushy deal, right? Eric gets to hang out at home, watch movies, eating Lucky Charms and drinking 50 cans of Diet Pepsi a day, his faves. That's all he had to do before Atkins' hearing. The date was set for June 2017. The plan his attorney laid out for him is if he helped put Atkins away, he'd get even a sweeter deal. But Eric had other plans. So in the early morning of Saturday, June 3rd, 2017, I think I was still in bed. It was like around 6.30 in the morning or something, and my phone goes off. And for a supervisor, it's never a good thing when your work phone goes off at 6.30 on a Saturday morning. So I answered the phone, and it was an officer from the United States Department of Probation who informed me that at approximately 11 o'clock the prior night, Khan had cut his ankle monitor and had fled, and that they had tried to locate him and they didn't know where he was at. So that's when you have an, ah, oh, shit moment. Here we go. We told him. We knew he was going to leave. Ah, oh, shit, indeed. So the $600 million question at that time is, where is Eric Kahn, and how did he get there? They're like, do you know where he could be? And I'm like, did you check his office? Because I was pretty sure in my little heart of hearts that first week or so that he was on the run, that he was actually back in his little office, just hunkered down and hiding out. He says in this email that uh, in fairness to the FBI, I had a year to plan for this. I learned the FBI's playbook. This guy thinks he's smarter than us. We can beat this guy. Don't lose, you know, don't take your foot off the gas pedal. That's next week on The Big Con, the official podcast. The Big Con, the official podcast, 
is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by FunMeter. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, here are some additional resources. For the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, call 1-800-273-8255. And for the Crisis Text Line, text HOME, that's H-O-M-E, to 741741. And remember, the four-part documentary series, The Big Con, is available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus where available. This is episode four of six. New episodes will be out every Friday. The show is hosted and executive produced by us. I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Sean Cannon, Boyd Holbrook, Evan Miscogny, and Heather Schrering also executive produced and helped write our episodes. And Boyd Holbrook narrated Eric's manuscript moments. It was produced by Shannon Pence, who also co-executive produced the documentary series. The show was engineered and sound designed by the team here at FunMeter and mixed by Ben Freer. The music from our show actually comes from our documentary series and was written by Brian Tyler, Josh Zimmerman, Nate Alexander, and Sarah Trevino, with additional music by Pelman Music and Sound. And make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.